Good morning, church. It is great to see everybody. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We are continuing in our series through Genesis, and this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 17, and we're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me, or if you, you're also welcome to uh, read along with me on the, the words above my head there on the screen. But Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he followed a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enoch lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, 
and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were, six, were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he followed a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. May God preach. May God bless the preaching of his word. Now, before we get into this passage, I want to quickly recap for us where we have been so far in our journey through Genesis. In chapter 1 and 2, we, we saw the creation of all things. God places mankind in the garden. They have fellowship with him. They enjoy the world he has given to them, and they are, they are tasked with this call to represent God as they care for this world. But then in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, as we remember, they are deceived by Satan. They rebel against God, and they are, they are cast out of the garden. So sin and death have entered the world along with the curse. And then in chapter 4, as, as Joel preached about last week, we, we see the effects of sin continue to grow as Cain in his anger and jealousy commits the first murder and, and kills his own brother. So in these opening chapters, there is a lot going on. There is creation and beauty and romance and then there is deception and betrayal and then murder. So these four chapters are packed with stories that, that capture our attention, filled with truth and warnings and hope. Chapters one through four are action-packed. But then we come to the end of chapter four and all of chapter five, which we just read, and what we find is pretty much this, this long list of names that are hard to pronounce. I think half my sermon prep this week was just trying to figure out how to pronounce all these names in this genealogy. Uh, we, we, we get this long list of names. We're told how many kids they had and then how old they were when they died. Not quite as exciting as the previous four chapters, right? And so if, if you are like me, then maybe you have, you've done Bible reading plans in the past and you've, you've been reading through a, a book of the Bible and you, you come to a passage like this and you kind of just skip over it, right? Or, uh, or maybe just you read through it quickly without really paying a whole lot of attention 
to it. You know, I, I certainly have done this before. And it's, it's kind of understandable because these chapters are not the easiest to engage with, right? Um, it's hard to see the significance of a long list of names of people who lived thousands of years ago. But here's the thing this morning for us, church. When it comes to passages like this, there are two possibilities. One possibility is that this is a 7,000-year-old a text that doesn't really have anything to do with our lives, and, and we're free to just skip over it as we do our Bible reading plans. Or the other possibility is that God has given us this passage for our joy, and that there is glorious truth in this passage that will strengthen our faith and give us joy and there's much of this to discover. And I'm going to argue that this second option is the one for us today. It's the argument that, that God argues as well. And in 2 Timothy 3, God says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What this means is that there is much for us to take away from this passage this morning. Before we dive into this text, here's the, here's the main idea that I think God would, would call us to understand um, in these verses. And it's that God is the only hope for a fallen humanity. And we're going to unpack this main idea by looking at two simple points this morning. First, the continuing effects of sin. And then second, the hope of coming salvation. So first, the continuing effects of our sin. Throughout these two chapters, we again are seeing the ongoing effects of a world that has turned from God and is walking in disobedience to him. Humanity in Genesis is off to a disastrous start. And as their rebellion against God continues, so does the severity of their sins. We, we remember last week when we, we read about Cain murdering his own brother in jealousy. And then this morning's text in verses 17 through 24, we're given the, the genealogy of Cain's descendants. So this is a, a historical account of Cain through many generations leading down to a man named Lamech. And in this genealogy, we, we see the worsening state of sin's influence on our world. In Genesis 3, you remember Adam and Eve, they, they disobeyed God, but they, they at least admitted their sin, even if they, if they blamed it on each other and on Satan. And in chapter 4, Cain kills his own brother, but then he, he lies about it, and he mocks God for questioning him over it. And now at the end of chapter 4, we see this progression of rebellion against God. And in verse 23, we have Lamech, this descendant of Cain, who is boasting about killing a man in revenge. He doesn't even attempt to cover it up. He laughs about it. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. This is a boast. He's saying, I killed a younger, stronger man than me. And I did it because he hit me. It's, it's wildly out of proportion with the wrong done against him. And he boasts in this wrongdoing. 
And, and he mocks God by saying, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's kind of mocking God's grace towards sinners. He's saying if God would protect Cain for the wrong that he did, how much more will God protect me since I have done even worse? He's mocking God, boasting in his murder. Lamech is a wicked man. And he represents the, the wickedness that is spreading throughout the earth. And remember, this is just one chapter after the fall. The this is the, the direction that fallen humanity heads in when we are separated from God. In these verses, we see many other evidences as well of this worsening rebellion. We see the distortion of marriage in, in verse 19. We see, we see Lamech rejecting God's purposes and design for marriage. He takes two wives for himself, and this leads to a long history of mistreatment of women. And we see the revenge, the murder, the boasting, rebellion against God is growing in addition to this, we also, we also see a, a world of, of emptiness without God. Through chapter 4, we, we, we see the first mention of this developing society and this building of cities and this thriving cultural life. And some of this is good. We see the, the creation of music and the arts, but then some of it is bad. We see, we see the distortion of marriage. We see boasting and murder. But, but in all this, we see a world that is striving to find purpose and love and joy all while living in rebellion to God. They have been separated from the joy of walking with God in the garden and now they are left with only the things of this world to satisfy them. And friends, this is the real tragedy of these first few chapters in Genesis. In the beginning, in the garden, man walked with God enjoying this world he gave to them without shame, without disunity, without fear. And it was their closeness to God that made joy in the garden so sweet. And now that has been lost, and there is striving to fill up what was lost, to fill up this void that is now in their lives. And isn't this how it is in our world and, and so often in our own lives as well? Not that, it's, not that it's wrong to enjoy the good that God has given us in this life. God has filled this world with things to delight us, but they are not the things that are to delight us the most. And where things go wrong is when we do not find God to be our highest pleasure and our truest satisfaction. This is what leads to sin. Because when we are, when we are distant from God, and we do not find our satisfaction in him. We pine for satisfaction in other things in life. And oftentimes we, we use God's good gifts and we, we twist them and we abuse them searching for happiness in this world. Or oftentimes we will seek to fill life with things that will turn our minds from the, the emptiness that we often feel or the sorrows that we experience in this world. We live in the, the distraction of the things that God has given us. This is why we take good things in life like food or sex and we use them in ways that God has not intended and we end up hurting ourselves, hurting those around us. This is why we long to have what we don't have and we, we steal from others. 
This is why we, we binge watch Netflix and TV in difficult times as a distraction, even to negate the other responsibilities in life. This is why we hate others in our hearts when they, when they get in our way or we, we don't get what we want from them. This is the effect of life where God is not our truest joy. And we see the effects of this in the world all around us in, in broken relationships, in wars, in sex trafficking, racism, hatred for one another on social media. A world separated from God living under the curse is a broken world. And we are continually in these chapters confronted with the grave reality that sin is serious both the sin in the world around us and the sin in our own hearts as well. If you're living in sin against God, the consequences of that sin are real. Sin left unchecked, unrepented of, it continues. And it continues not only in our lives, but its effects continue into the lives of generations after us. In the immediate chapters following the fall and the curse in chapter 3, we see humanity quickly moving further and further away from God. And the serious effects of sin get even greater now as we move from chapter 4 into chapter 5. Chapter 5 is this genealogy that follows the family line from Adam all the way down to Noah. And throughout this chapter we see a new theme introduced into the storyline of Scripture. And that theme is death. Verses 1 through 4 recount God's creation of humanity and the life of Adam, and it ends this way. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Now we've seen death already with with Cain and, and Lamech and their actions, but now we're confronted with the reality that, that death is a regular part of life in this fallen world. Eight times throughout this genealogy, we see this repetitive phrase saying, and this person lived this many years, and then they died. Now we are seeing the serious effects of the curse, right? Death is now inescapable in this fallen world. And we know this was not God's original design for humanity. When we think back to the garden and the life that God had given to Adam and Eve, but death now is a result of the fall. It's now this ever-present reality in our lives. A few weeks ago, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone, and he was sharing with me about a death that had happened in his family. And we were just grieving over that together. And then just a few hours after this conversation, I got a call from my work at the hospital informing me that my, my boss, my direct supervisor, had that morning gotten killed in a car accident on the way to work. And then later that evening, just a few hours after this conversation, I got a, a text from a friend filling me in on this, on this article, this news report that had come out about this teenage girl in Delaware who had been beaten and killed by her teenage boyfriend and left in the woods. And I know there are, there are lots of, we hear often about death almost on a daily basis in the news. Even this year we have, we have seen it. Lots of videos have come out of shootings. We've seen death if we've seen these videos. And, and many of us have 
we've lived long enough, have known personally people who have died in our lives. And so we see this a lot. We hear about this a lot. But I, I think for me, on that, on that day a couple of weeks ago, I think it was just this combination of, of news reports and these back-to-back-to-back phone calls like God, and all in the course of that one day, just the reality of death just hit me in a particular way. I just, I remember sitting on my couch, and I just broke down in tears under the weight of this reality. Once humanity turned from God, death became an inescapable reality, and it remains so for us today, unless Christ returns in our lifetime, which he could, it may happen, but unless he returns in our lifetime, all of us in this room will one day face that reality. Some of us may be relatively soon, some of us many years from now, but we will all face it. It's inevitable. It's an, it's an irreversible reality. Just yesterday, I, I saw this, another just heartbreaking article on the news about this, this man that had learned that his fiance had actually had accidentally gotten killed halfway around the world while she was in the midst of having an affair with another man. And this man was heartbroken. And in, in his weakened and desperate state, he started, he started joining these online groups and, and researching the legitimacy of time travel. I say, I say none of this to be funny. This man is in this like desperate, hopeless state, searching for any possibility of, of going back in time, fixing this wrong that was done, solving this problem, saving his fiance. But death apart from God cannot be undone nor can the consequences of sin against God. And friends, this is a sobering truth. Sin and the consequences of those sins and the eventual reality of death in this world, they are things that that we as, as people do not like thinking about. And understandably so. These are our weighty things. They are sorrowful things. And I imagine there are, there are many here this morning who are, who are weary from the effects of sin. Either sin in your own life or from the effects of the brokenness of this world around you. I imagine there are those here who are sorrowful from the taste of death from this life. I imagine there are those who struggle to know whether God is near to you. Or who, or who rest has, is a distant memory for you. And friends, we don't often like thinking about these things or talking about these things, but God's word addresses them. And it's good that it does. God's word acknowledges the sorrow that we often live in this life. And there's, there's no expectation in Scripture that we should ignore these things or that we should be able to move quickly beyond the, the trauma of the death and the sorrows and the sufferings that we experience in life. So if you're here this morning and you are experiencing the brokenness of this world in a particular way, God's Word acknowledges that. And rather than demanding that we navigate our way out of this brokenness, God steps down into our brokenness. And with this thought, I want us now to move to our second point. 
where we get a glorious look at the hope that we have in God. So point two, the hope of the coming salvation. Again, as we look at these opening chapters in Genesis, we see a disastrous start to humanity. These opening chapters have not been promising. But then we get chapter five. Chapter five is a message of great hope. And again, this may be surprising, given that it is a passage of a long list of names and dates, but it is. Salvation, the gospel, the hope of Jesus is all over this chapter. So let's get into it, friends. And as we do, stay with me as we do so, because we're going to have to spend some time digging through some of these names as we think through why they are here in this story. Chapter 5 begins in verses 1 and 2 with this quick summary of creation. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam, when God created man. He made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. This is a reminder to us of God's original plan for creation. We are made in his image, meant to enjoy him and to enjoy the blessings that he has given us in this world as we carry out his will for us in life. But humanity failed. We sinned against God, and our relationship with him was broken. Death was introduced into the world. And God could have just left it at that. He could, have, he could have left us to that fate. But God did not leave Adam and Eve without hope. Remember back in Genesis 3 and verse 15, where, where God gave a glimmer of hope in this dark situation. This is God speaking to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this statement, God is declaring two things. First, he's declaring that because of sin, there will be ongoing struggle and pain that those who follow him will face. But it's also a declaration that someone is coming, an offspring from Eve that will crush the head of evil and will restore what was lost in the garden. Imagine how important that promise would have been to Adam and Eve. They had lost the garden. Their relationship with God had been broken. They were now witnessing the consequences of their sin unfolding, bringing pain and sorrow and death to the world around them. Chapter 3 was a heartbreaking chapter. But God had given this promise of someone who is going to come and redeem all of this. That's why Joel spoke about last week that when, when Adam and Eve were, gave birth to Abel, they thought that maybe he was the one. Maybe he was this coming savior. But those hopes were dashed when he was murdered by Cain. And of course, they had their other son, Cain, but he was the one who murdered Abel. So not a whole lot of hope there, right? But then we get to chapter 5, and we get to the birth of a man named Seth. And it is in this person of Seth that we see the story of God's salvation begin to unfold. And it's a story that will reveal God's salvation more and more throughout all of Scripture. But the story begins here. Seth is such an important character in Scripture. And we really see the beginning of Seth is really right before 
chapter 5. It's the last two verses of, of chapter 4 where it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So as it becomes clear that this promised Savior is not coming from Cain or Abel, God gave another offspring. And there's an obvious contrast between the life of Cain and the life of Seth. Cain was this wicked man who rejected God, but Seth turned to God, looking to him for hope. The text says that in the days of Seth, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the first mention of Scripture of people beginning to turn to God in worship. A small group of people recognizing their need for Him. This is a pivotal moment in the history where the cycle of rejecting God is broken. And now there are those who are looking to God for hope. In many ways, the the book of Genesis and that the story of, of salvation really begins here in this genealogy here in chapter 5. Because it's here that we see redemption begin to unfold. Throughout this genealogy, we see people beginning to worship God, walk with God, and are being used by him to bring hope. It is through the line of Seth that God moves to restore people to himself. It's through the line of Seth that we, we are introduced to characters like, like Noah, who God used to save humanity from the coming judgment of the flood, which we're getting into next week. And Abraham, who God used to form the nation of Israel. It's through, it's through Seth that we meet characters like Esther, who saved God's people from being wiped out by the wicked king. It's through Seth that we introduce the, the, the character of King David, who is a foreshadow of Jesus, the true king to come. These are men and women that God used throughout the Old Testament to preserve his people and to lead his people as part of his salvation. And they all point toward Jesus, the true Savior. And you know where we're first introduced to Jesus? It's in Matthew chapter 1, which is a genealogy that links the line of Jesus all the way back through history to Adam, who came from the line of Seth, showing that Christ is the coming Savior that was promised all the way back in Genesis. And here's the thing, church. Throughout all the Old Testament, God's people were waiting for this coming Savior, waiting for this promised offspring from the seed of Adam, from the line of Seth, who would rise up and bring deliverance. And the mystery of the gospel the great revelation that we see here in the New Testament is that this Savior was God himself. Rather than demanding that God's people find hope from within themselves, he comes to them. He does not demand that we rise out of the brokenness of our lives to meet him. Instead, he steps down into our brokenness to meet us. Diane Langberg, who, who wrote a wonderful book on God's heart towards those who experience suffering in this world, says this. When God interfaces with this world, he leaves the higher and descends. He leaves the beauty and enters chaos. 
He leaves pure and goes into the filthy. And he demonstrates that our God does not just speak words, but also acts. God has not just from his high throne in heaven promised redemption, but he has acted to do so. The sorrow and the brokenness that you feel in life, whether it's from the fallness around you or from the effects of your own sin, it is very real. But God has says, you do not have to go searching for help and for hope. You do not have to find it within yourself. I will come to you, he says. And that is what he has done in Christ. Christ, God himself, came down from heaven into our world, born from the line of Adam and from Seth, to give his life for us on the cross where he crushed the head of Satan and undid the curse. These genealogies here in Genesis and Matthew, they lead us to see and to hope and to worship Jesus. They are not random chapters filled with names of people that we don't care about. They are loud statements that God is making about who he is and what he has done to redeem us. This is why Moses, when he, when he was inspired to write the book of Genesis, included chapter 5. It was to give encouragement to God's people. God's people in the Old Testament would have read this genealogy and they would have seen the work that God is doing to bring about redemption. And this is the effect that it should have on us today as well. As we finish out quickly here at chapter 5, we're going to be dwelling together more on the hope that we see in God's word. And to understand more of this hope, I, I want to introduce us to one more character that we meet here. In chapter 5, verse 24, we are introduced to the person of Enoch. Now to understand the purpose of Enoch and why he's mentioned here, we need to compare this genealogy, the genealogy of Adam through the line of Seth, to the genealogy of Adam through the line of Cain that we saw in chapter 4. Again, in, in Cain's genealogy, we see sin, we see the rejection of God and the legacy of, of evil leading up to Lamech. But in Seth's genealogy, leading up to the person of Enoch, we see worship of God and people turning to him for help. So we have this guy, Enoch, who seems to know God. There seems to be a closeness to God. And we see this contrast between Lamech and Enoch. And in verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so if you're reading through chapter 5, and you're, you're paying close attention, you come to Enoch, and you're like, wait, wait a minute, like, what just happened here? Enoch didn't die. What's striking about this verse is that we see this pattern of death is broken, this whole genealogy is a pattern of death. It says, Seth lived many, this many days and then he died. Enosh lived this many days and then he died. Kenan lived this many days and then he died. Mahalalel lived this many days and then he died. Jared lived so many days and then he died. And then we come to Enoch and it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch didn't die. Now this is certainly an unusual statement, right? And to make sense of what this means and why this happened to Enoch, we can go to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. And chapter 11 describes this event in more detail. And it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. 
And he was not found because God had taken him. And before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch didn't die. The text says that God took him, meaning that he was, he was raptured to meet with God in heaven. And the story of Enoch shows the power that God has over death and the hope that we have in him. Unless, again, if Christ, unless Christ returns in our lifetime, we will most likely not be raptured up like Enoch was. But we have the same hope that death is no longer the great enemy that it was. And that those who trust in Christ will rise again. Physical death for those who are in Christ will be undone. And eternal life awaits you. So also spiritual death, separation from God has already been undone. And we look forward to the day when we will be fully be united with God in heaven. And while this does not remove all the lingering effects of the fall that we still face in this broken world, what God's word does is it reminds us of what our hope is in. When we sin, we have a God who is gracious and merciful to forgive us. And if the weight of sin is heavy on your hearts this morning, do not turn to God, but turn to God and see the forgiveness that he has given you in Christ. If the brokenness of the world is weighing heavily on you, then call out to God who draws near to you, who has stepped down into that brokenness and find in him your truest joy. If fear is weighing on you this morning, hope in Christ who has conquered our greatest enemy and will one day restore all that is broken. God's word and these, these long genealogies, they, they speak to the brokenness of this world, but they point us to a greater reality, the person of Christ who has come to redeem it. Let's hope in him this week, church. Let me pray.